Do you feel like you've heard enough or too much of politics and just want to tune it out? I hear you, but have you heard deeply researched and well-informed coverage of a particular political theory behind a lot of slogans, demands, and claims at play in this election? It involves socialism, but not as its proponents understand it. I'm Sheila Lagminas, and you're in the forum. We've covered this point many times, but it's worth saying again, and indeed necessary to say again, this election, any election, is a contest between two opposing worldviews. You've heard a lot of promises, claims about plans and policies, ideas about foreign affairs and trade, the economy and healthcare, and these days, a lot about social justice. But you likely haven't heard the deeper details about what informs one of the party's ideologies, and we all need to know that. Joining me for that deeper dive is Dr. Paul Kangor, professor of political science at Grove City College and author of many important books, including A Pope and a President, The Divine Plan, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism, many more, and his latest, The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Paul, welcome back. It's so great to talk with you always. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Sheila, and I miss you. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it has been too long. I, I've seen you a lot, and I'm making that point because I want people to know there are a couple of series running on EWTN, and I've seen you in both. One of mm -hmm. them is Gender Ideologies, a jaw-dropping show, the Gender Ideologies. It really album. is, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. A wolf, wolf in Sheep's Clothing. Part two is all about gender ideologies. And Paul, I mean, I'm a journalist, long back, long time journalist going way back. I cover tons. I research, I love research, and I delve in and do that deep dive all the time. So I know a lot about back in the day and and and, and how we got where we got to some degree. But I gotta tell you, watching uh, the Wolf and Sheep's clothing, the gender ideology part two on EWTN, I learned things from you and the others on that. Uh, in your book here that I never knew before. And that's why I want everyone who can hear this to learn these things too, because how we really specifically got here is really in that, this book, The Devil and Karl Marx, and that series more than anything I've seen before. I also saw you in The Divine Plan, which is Paul kind of of a piece, right? Because when yeah. you get into Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, and their, their, their work together against the evil empire and what communism stood for, stands for and stood for, they really do go together, as you say, sort of in the front of the book about Karl Marx's role in communism in the manifesto. So, you know, as you say in your own preface, a preface is supposed to tell you what's coming up in the book and you say how, how to start, where to begin and where to end this preface, because this covers so, so much. So tell us why you wrote this book, why now, and why Karl, the devil and Karl Marx? Yeah, boy, many different projects there with different ends. So the Divine Plan, I mean, that had a very positive ending. You have Ronald Reagan and John Paul II coming together to, to battle peacefully to try to end the scourge of atheistic communism. The, uh, you mentioned the gender, the gender agenda, wolf in sheep's clothing, too. Really depressing, isn't it, Sheila? I mean, oh, it's yeah. just terrible, some of, the, some of the information in there. Sickening. And, yeah, and that, that's a battle that, in a way, goes, of course, way back, but 
has really, in a way, just begun. And you know, that's going to carry on through this century, 21st century, 21st century. And kind of sadly, with this Devil and Karl Marx book, I recognize there that there's an ideology that, that Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul II, that our church, the Roman Catholic Church, defeated, in no question, defeated Soviet communism. And yet, you know, here we are, you know, almost a quarter into the 21st century, you know, the first couple decades of the 20th century, and communism is coming back. <laughs> it's, it, has, it has supporters, especially among young people in the United States. You know, there, there are groups, there is some of these protesters, people are out there carrying red flags, hammer and sickle. It's, it's just unbelievable to see this. And you know, that's wow. because, yeah, so even though Ronald Reagan and John Paul II might have defeated Soviet communism, this, this scourge of atheistic communism remains. And you know, our, our church recognized this as far back as 1846. And it, it's quite remarkable because the Communist Manifesto came out in 1848. So communism pre-existed the Communist Manifesto, but the Communist Manifesto was to be you know, the programmatic statement by the Communist League or Communist Party as it was then which Marx and Engels were a part of. So you know, they, they did this manifesto as a statement of what communists believe. But, but the ideology went back a little before the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. And our, yeah, our church beat them to the punch. And so Pope, Pope Pius IX published Qui Pluribus in 1846. And by the way, it's funny, I'm just thinking of this because of your introduction. Uh, uh, Pius IX, as well as other popes, warned about communism as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they use that, they use that same kind of language. Uh, the, these people who talk about justice, who talk about social justice, and then, and then in the dark of night, they, they bind their captives, as they put it. They, you know, they, they, dismember, the, they dismember the flock. Um, sometimes they even kill the sheep. So you know, our, our church has understood this from the very beginning, and you know, we could really look to a, a remarkable history of church statements, teachings, and encyclicals for guidance in, in responding to Marxism. Well, that's what we need right now, guidance in responding to it, because, Paul, so many people who are going to be voting have no idea. As Michael Knowles says in the foreword to your book, The Devil and Karl Marx, conservatives in the decades since Reagan won the Cold War have begun to forget just what makes Marxism so wrong, and their failure, failure to articulate Marx's fatal flaw has left an entire generation prey to the deadliest ideology in history, imperiling not only minds, but souls. And as you said, young minds, it's just mind boggling, Paul Kangor, that so many young people can embrace this so as, as so far as to even call themselves democratic socialists. What appeals to them about this? The, probably the fact that they don't really know what it stands for deeply. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it's interesting, Michael Knowles, who really understands young people, right, being at the Daily mm -hmm. Wire and being probably one of the most popular young Catholic speakers, bloggers, writers, um, podcasts, radio out there today, and he makes the point that the conservatives like to say that, you know, socialism doesn't work because it distorts markets, right, or, right. You know, or it destroys economies, and he says, well, you know, it doesn't 
it doesn't work just because it distorts markets. I mean, what's more important to understand here is, is that socialism is evil. It, 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 come, it comes from a failure to understand human nature. And, and, and for people who don't know the difference in, in classic Marxist theory, Marxist-Leninist theory, socialism would be one step on, uh, on in this, in this trans, uh, one step, one final phase um, in, in this transitional process to full communism. So you would begin history, the dialectical march of history, as Marx and Engels put it, would go through these various phases or stages. You go from feudalism to slavery to capitalism to socialism to communism. Mm -hmm. uh, Marion Smith, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, Sheila, he likes to say when he's asked the difference between socialism and communism, he says, well, like Christians go to heaven, socialists go to communism, <laughs> right? Oh, wow. That's what they aspire to. And, and, I, and I like that analogy because, because for socialists, for communists, as Pope Benedict XVI put out, this is, like, this, is, this is like a religion for them. This is a mm -hmm. messianic ideology. This, this is a utopian ideology. Communism is their new Jerusalem. You know, that's, that's, their, that's their city of whatever. That's their city of God, right? That's, that's, that's what they aspire to. And so socialism to the, to the true socialist, to the true communist, it is that. It's common ownership of the means of production. And it's the final stage in the transition to full communism. So, so Paul, let's dig into to the even deeper, as Michael Knowles and you point out through this very thick and very uh, detailed book filled with things. I, as a, as a journalist who loves, I'm a policy wonk, a research wonk, and I didn't know a lot of this. As Michael Knowles says up front, whether or not a political system, because he talks about what you just said, socialism destroys economies. A lot of people will say that. It never has worked where it has been tried. You know what? That, that, that fails to turn people away from it, talking like that. Socialism distorts markets, as, you, as he says in your foreword. But, but he says whether or not a political system works depends on what it's working towards. And socialism strives to tear down traditional society. What you get into in the book, what you just said, for communists, for socialists, it, it is a religion. And it's, it's it, unfortunately, the, the deep, dark, dirty, disgusting secret and there's so much of that in here you you had to go through so much mm, i can't terrible. even imagine yeah. the evil you had to wade through as a researcher paul to come up with the material for this book is that they were if there's one strategy and many countless tactics to get there it seems am i right that the strategy has been all along to destroy the family and therefore you're going to destroy everything else society education you name it everything faith churches you destroy it all by going after the family that's right in fact the communist manifesto marx and eagles actually write abolition of the family exclamation mark even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists so they wow. could already write in 1848 sheila that abolition of the family was an infamous proposal communists. So, so people already knew about that. And, and, and you're right. So people who say, well, communism doesn't work because it distorts markets or socialism doesn't work because it distorts markets. And a lot of those people will say it doesn't work because we just haven't gotten it right yet, but we'll get mm. it. And what we need to say to them is no, no, th this, th this doesn't work because it's evil. It, it, and it doesn't work because it fails to understand human nature. It doesn't work because it's so absolutely revolutionary and contrary to human nature. 
Uh, Marx in the manifesto said that communism represents, quote, the most radical rupture in traditional relations, right? Imagine wow. that, a radical rupture in traditional relations. He and Engels said that communism seeks, this is my all-time favorite, communism seeks to, quote, abolish the present state of things. Wow. Uh, yeah, imagine that. Is that all, guys? <laughs> right? I mean, imagine, Sheila, if one of my students at Grove City College turned in a paper saying, Professor Kangor, I'm going to argue here that we need to abolish the present state of things, right? <laughs> well, well, which things, Jimmy? Well, all things. <laughs> We're going to abolish the present state of things. And, and then if, if somebody could tell me, you know, well, a, a guy named Marx and Engels are going to write this in the 1840s, and they're going to pick up millions of adherents all the way into the state. Um, Marx and Engels stated in the manifesto that that communists, quote, openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. And right there, I mean, they understood that, that if you want to abolish the present state of things, if you want to get rid of all existing social conditions, you're going to need force, right? As, that's going to require force. For sure. Yeah, and, and, and when Marx wasn't abolishing everything, he was criticizing everything. He, he wrote a letter to his friend Arnold Rouge calling for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. Wow. And, yeah, and I think maybe my favorite line of all, maybe the most hideous line from Marx of all, and this gets to the, the, the question of the devil and Karl Marx, he had his favorite play was Goethe's Faust. And, and that had the famous Mephistopheles character, mm -hmm. the, the demon, devil character. And Marx had a favorite line from there. In fact, his friends, contemporaries said he would not just recite this line, he would shout it, he would chant it. And the line was, everything that exists deserves to perish. Everything that exists deserves to perish. So this idea that this, this, is, this is this warm and fuzzy ideology, and, and, and you get this from surveys of young Americans who when you ask them, oh, oh, so you do support communism. Well, how would you define it? Oh, well, it's about people being kind to one another. It's about sharing things. It's about the redistribution of wealth. No, it's about the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. It's about everything that exists deserves to perish. I mean, Karl Marx wanted to burn down the house. And then stand there in the middle of the burning, smoking embers, you know, fist in the air. When, when, when I see these, this, the statue movement today, Sheila, right? Yeah. Uh, the mobs that are ripping down everyone from Washington and Jefferson to Columbus to St. Hanipero Serra throughout mm -hmm. the California missions. And there's literally flames and fire and chanting. And, you know, in the morning, embers. You know, I, I think of Marx. I mean, you know, that, you know, that's all about, people have asked me, well, I, you know, I don't really understand. What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to tear down. And that's what Marx wanted to do. Only after you tear it all down and raise the foundation, could you then begin the world anew. And uh, that's, that's very Marxist thinking and behavior. Before asking you what they want to build then if they tear everything down, and as we've heard, Paul, over the very intense hot summer we've been through of all of these riots and violence, I mean, there were very few peaceful protests. Many of them grew into 
violent protests and even uh, mob violence looting. It happened in my city of Chicago a couple or a few different times, and then it, it fanned out to the to the suburbs. But but in but in all of the, in all of that shouting and and so forth, you heard some of many chants, but but one of them was blow everything up. I mean, you, you. I mean, they certainly did bring down more than one police station, I think, and they went after the the institutions of power, like city halls, right? They went after what what exists as you know power and administration. So that that seems like it's straight out of that book. But when you refer to the young young people, if you ask somebody, well, what's so attractive to you about communism slash socialism? And they say, well, you know, everybody loves everybody else. It's just and there's a re- re- redistribution of wealth to fit that social justice. You've got in your book, Paul, the line that communism's most successful form of redistribution was not wealth, but government orchestrated crime. You said everything was so nationalized and so centralized that it was as if the government seized crime too. So the blow everything up, tear everything down, start all over again means what when you look at that? It's not about redistributing things. It's about destroying everything so you can everything you have now taken you can start building something in your image or something and what would that look like yeah in fact lenin gave this famous speech in 1920 to the to the communist youth and he was quoting marx and and you know he said there we need to destroy the foundations of the old we need to transform the old and and he and he said quote only by radically remolding the teaching organization and training of the youth, shall we be able to ensure that the efforts of the younger generation will result in the creation of a society that will be unlike the old society, i.e. in the creation of a communist society. So yeah, so you had had to radically remold, you had to radically reteach, reorganize and train the youth. And and, you know, I, I pause here to note that it always strikes me when Patrice Kohlers, who's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, I actually have her memoirs right here on, on, on my desk. And, and she, she pointed out, she said, we are trained Marxist organizers. And you know that, that phrase, trained Marxist organizers, that means a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, people don't, don't realize the full extent of, of what that means. So it's not just that she believes in Marxists, right? But she's a trained Marxist organizer. And you know, th- th- those people understand you know, how to carry out the revolution, how to take it to the streets, and, and you know, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to seek quite literally a, 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 a revolution. That's what we hear thereafter in, again, the hot summer of um, protests and violence across the country is revolution. Besides, you know, blow everything up, burn everything down. And uh, we also hear revolution. This is, I've saw, I've seen placards, signs in the streets as they've marched and shouted, uh, revolution. This is the revolution. Some of them stopped by uh, individual reporters with cameras there to, to, cat, you know, to, to talk to them and ask them what they're for. They talk about this being the revolution. So it's it's what you said, Paul. You know, we know this is organized. You can see that that has come out a few to several different times. Not really enough, but all of these protests and demonstrations, and even the violence and looting, has been organized. And it's kind of coming right out of your book. And, and uh, it, to that point, because of the the people in the summer, and they're still doing it. 
So the people who are doing this, right out of your book, you say, you, you cite Ronald Reagan as saying, mankind has survived all manner of evil diseases and plagues, but, it, but can it survive communism? He asked, maybe rhetorically. He called it a vicious disease. And he added that communism is neither an economic nor a political system. It's a form of insanity. <laughs> what, what you write, what sort of warped idea could unleash such agony? Conventional explanations simply do not suffice. And I thought, right, true that, Paul Kangor. The fullest answer resides in the realm of the spirit. And I made very big note of that. In the realm of the spirit, it has to have a spiritual explanation. You, you, you say... It's a diabolical ideology with an inexplicable attraction to its adherence, yes. a, a bizarre seductive quality to its ideological cultists. Let's break that down. It being sort of cult-like or a cult de facto, it has a bizarre seductive quality to it. Why so? Because you went back to the beginning adherence and how it spread. How is it that it's got those, that seductive quality today? Yeah, because, you know, Sheila, anybody who actually reads the Communist Manifesto, especially, I'd say, anybody, you know, over the age of 30 who's been in the business world, who has any experience working anywhere in the private sector, paying taxes, I mean, anybody, whatever. And I don't even know if you have to be, you have to have experience. I'm telling you, people, people listen to me. If you just read this book, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you read this and you think to yourself, I can't believe that people took this seriously. I, I, you know, I know. How are you going to do this? I, I, I mean, I, I just, I, I imagine Mark sitting there with his professor and the professor saying, son, let, let, let's, go, let's go through this, okay? Um, how, how do you propose to do this, right? And he says, well, the... Uh, the masses. Okay. How do you define the masses? Well, the masses are, you know, whatever. Okay. When do the masses do this? Well, they'll do it when, okay. How does that happen? At what point? And then who decides this? And then who is the group to do that? And this <laughs> abolition of the government, the government withers away. Who decides that it withers away? What about this? What about, <laughs> I mean, there's just, I'm telling you, anybody, anybody reading this would, would, would just be flummoxed at how anyone could take this seriously. There, there, there was a reviewer at National Review, and he's very young, and he, he, he did a very negative review of this, of this book, and he criticized me for being um, very demeaning toward, toward Marxism. He said, you're not going to, you're not going to convince any Marxists with this book. But, well, I'm past that. I, I don't know how anybody could be a Marxist. I think we're at the point where we have to stop kind of humming and hawing about this, Sheila, and saying, saying again, well, well, you have to understand here that this distorts markets, and this goes against the market forces of supply and demand. No, <laughs> I mean, no. It's, it's way deeper than that. You, you need to like take this book and slap somebody upside the head with it and, and say, say, do you realize what you're talking about here? Um, I, I, I think the, I, I cannot understand the attraction that this has had to people because it so obviously violates common sense and experience, which again makes me think that part of this, like the church said, the church would say, well, you need to understand 
this is spiritual. This isn't just an economic battle. There, there's a deep spiritual thing going on here. Very deep spiritual thing. It's in your book. It's throughout your book. The evil is, I mean, there are pages and chapters on things that are diabolical and things that are evil that are hard to even read in here. Yeah, I skipped ahead. And you know, as you said in your preface, uh, I don't know if I said this before we started, we were, you know, talking for this show, or if I said it since we have, but it's worth saying again, that in your preface, and we know this in, in writing books, that the, the purpose of a preface, you say, is to briefly set the table for what's to follow. And a book that, on the evil that is communism, that's a tall order. I mean, how do you even do this? Where do you begin? Where do you end? Right. And you fill it. You just fill it with facts people don't know. I, I skipped ahead to a couple of things that should be very important to Christian voters in this and any election, Paul, are, of course, life and religious liberty, because that religious liberty then allows anybody of faith to live their faith according to what they're taught in their faith in their public life as well as their private life. And so I, there's a lot of there's a lot of chat. In fact, the bigger chunk of the book is religious beliefs and what Marxism, communism, Marxism does to is how it sees religious beliefs and does to it. You all the way back on your book, Dupes, you said in researching that I, I, you say I found repeatedly dating back a century, beginning with the launch of Communist Party USA in 1919, atheistic communists clearly tapping social justice language. Whoa, not because they believed in Jesus, quite the contrary, but to dupe believers in Jesus, specifically progressive Christians. Well, now move ahead to where we are right now. Look at this election. Catholics seem to be split all the time, Paul, in elections, 50-50 almost for the left and the right. And how that can continue to happen when the left has gone so far left, so progressive now that abortion is no longer safe, legal, and rare. It's just legal all the time and not the others. And all the way through practically, and well, it is, infanticide. So there's that. And then there's religious belief. We can't be discriminated against. We have to be very mindful when we vote of our right to religious freedom. You've got that in here as well, because that's another thing Marx and, and communists and to this day, uh, the crowds want to, uh, to take from us or at least seriously restrict down to uh, your right to worship within the walls of your favorite place. Yeah, and my friend Herb Romerstein, I remember when I first started researching the book Dupes, and, and I said to him, I said, Herb, was there a particular group where, where communists had more success kind of infiltrating and manipulating than any others, you know, maybe the labor unions, teachers or whatever, and he, and he just paused, he, he paused Sheila and said to me, he said, Paul, the religious left. He said they were the biggest suckers of them all, the religious left. They, they were trusting, the, the communists would quote scripture to them. Um, like Manny Johnson, the ex-communist said, the devil doth quote scripture, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I quote in this book, Earl Browder, who's probably the most famous general secretary of Communist Party USA. And he was speaking to Union Theological Seminary in the 1930s, a big liberal Protestant seminary. And he said, you may be interested in knowing that we have preachers, preachers active in churches who are members of the Communist Party. So, so these just weren't people well, who were sympathetic. Yeah, they're actual members of, of all things, of a party that, as Browder and William Z. Foster and others said, that he, uh, he was asked, in fact, uh, Foster was asked about this under congressional testimony. 
he was asked, you know, could somebody be a party member and be a Christian? And he said, hmm, <laughs> well, I don't know why anybody would want to be a Christian who would want to, who, wow. who would want to be a communist. But I suppose we'd be willing to accept that person um, so long as he was in the process of liquidating his religious beliefs, right? Oh. His religious superstitions. So the fact that you could have today, take July 2019, America Magazine, the leading Jesuit magazine, published a piece called Catholic Case for Communism. The Catholic Case for Communism. Mm. That, yeah, that would have not only Pope Pius IX and Leo XIII and all the different popes just just shocked at it. It would have Marx and Engels and Lenin shocked. You know, they they would have said, "You you can't you can't be a communist and a Christian. You can't be a communist and a Catholic. Are are you nuts?" But but so many people on our side, you know, to to quote from Vatican II, one of the Vatican II document documents on this, they they are not wary enough about the deceptiveness of communism. And a lot of them are attracted to communism or socialism for economic reasons. But the church said, you know, you, you, you can't do that because this is an atheistic, materialistic ideology that's wrong. As Pope Pius XI noted in Quadra J.C. Milano, one cannot be at the same time a, a true Catholic and a socialist. And he and the church said, look, if you wanna help the poor, if you want to help your common man, if you want to share your wealth, just do the gospel. Just be a Christian. Mm -hmm. Don't sign up to an atheistic creed that, that seeks you know, a fundamental revolution in human nature and doesn't believe in God. Just do the gospel. Don't become a socialist. Well, uh, I know I have to wrap up with you soon, Paul, because uh, of your schedule. So coming full circle back to when I said, you know, the, I, in your book, I saw all over the place towards from the center, well, all over the book, from the not even middle of the book yet back is going after the family goes means going after women. Speaking of Vatican II, the closing messages brief as they were to each sort of group, each individual, to workers, to, you know, I don't know, students, to all these artists, to all these different people, but to women. The Vatican fathers said, you know, you can aid mankind by not falling. And, and it, it is to you to whom life has been given. And it was absolutely eloquently beautiful, Paul, you know that. Yeah. But but here we are now, and in your book, it explains how going after the family meant first getting the women, and you've got it now. You've got the, you've got the family, you've got society, and look at where we are today. In your article for the National Catholic Register, when Joe Biden saved Roe v. Wade, that brings us to the abortion aspect of getting the women and then getting them to believe in and accept and then go after abortion. And, and as you say, Nancy Pelosi calls that sacred ground now. We're at yeah. that point. That's unbelievable. You, um, this is pretty stunning. The Joe Biden uh, matchup with Warren Rudman in getting the the nomination of David Souter through when he was Joe Biden was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee for that hearing, and Souter was pivotal in getting Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, through to be enshrined in law. Tell what what is that? What is the Speaking of the attraction to people who should know better, what we know about abortion today and its ravages to women and to society and to men, how can it still be called sacred ground and be that sacred cow for the adherents in that party? Yeah, it's amazing. And, that, and that's a case of how somebody like Nancy Pelosi, a lifelong professing Catholic, 
is you know highly deceived. I mean, of all things, to refer to to Roe v. Wade as quote sacred ground to me unquote. I, I mean, it's just hideous. And you you would think, and we've been urging people on that side, Sheila, for years. You know, you know, please, at the very least, can you just condemn abortion and say, well, you know, I I, I very reluctantly pro-choice. I, I'm really against this. You shouldn't have one. And I hate to do this, but I do kind of believe it needs to be legal, um, but it's really not morally right. I'm very reluctantly pro-choice. No, instead they'll say things like, yeah, this is sacred ground to me. I, I mean, that's just, it, 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 it's awful. It's, it's hideous. And, it, and it's put so many Catholics in a position where in, in an election in 2020, like 2016, you can't, you can't vote for the other side. You can't, you can't vote for a pro-choice Democrat for president. And, and I know that, the Dem that like Catholic Democrats don't like to hear that. And they say, well, you're telling them they got to vote for the Republican. No, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that it's a tragedy that, that your party has not given us any other option. I, I mean, Joe Biden's position going against the Hyde Amendment, yeah, doing what yeah. he did to shepherd through people like Justice David Souter, who was the crucial pivot vote in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. It's a shame you've left us no other option but, but to not vote for that guy. And that's not, that's not your fault, Sheila. That's not my fault. That's their fault. And so you know, then they go and we can't vote for them and we tell them we can't vote for them and then they yell at us. It's not our fault. That's their fault. And you end the piece by saying the Catholic presidential candidate, Joe Biden, is hoping that Catholics vote for him on November 3rd. And you write, if so, he'll pay them back by placing as many David suitors on the Supreme Court as he can muster, quite possibly even by packing the court. As, as Joe Biden knows, he must save Roe. And we know where Kamala Harris stands as a California attorney general. She, as the California attorney general, she's responsible for the raid on David Daleiden's house. Right. Getting those undercover videos and so forth, we know where she stands. So that is the uh, so-called choice we, in the language of choice. We do have choices. We have free will, but it's it's very important that we vote with a, a well-informed conscience. And Paul, you're doing a yeoman's job of putting information out there so that people are well-informed. Well, thank you, Sheila, and and uh, you continue to do so as well. And thank you for all your great work over the years. And. And two, if I can make a plug for your book on the non-negotiables, I, I think uh, people people need to go back and read that book. And what what you wrote that was a while, like four years ago, maybe. maybe yeah, a little longer than that, but it's as, as relevant now as ever, oh, and pro perhaps so more relevant. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I that, that I can't think of a book more relevant to to November third, twenty twenty, than that book. Oh, thank you, Paul. So thank you. Yeah. All of your books. Thank you. All of your books are so relevant and so important. We could spend hours, but I wanted to get a little bit of time in here on your latest, The Devil and Karl Marx. This is so important for people to read. I'll post the link and uh, everyone listening can get that. And I hope they will. I'll continue to push it out there, Paul, because whatever happens on November 3rd, we're going to have a lot of conversations going forward with what happens in America and our people. And we need to roll up our sleeves. We have a lot of work to do. So Dr. Paul Kangor, thank you for your time. Now we will talk again. Again before long. God yeah, bless anytime, you. Anytime, Sheila. Thank you. Take care. You as well. That's all for now. It's great to spend time with you. Thanks for tuning in. I ask you to share the link and invite others to join us here in the forum.